welcome to the Coast to Coast Podcast. We're back here with episode 20. I am your host, Kyle Creasy. And today I have a really special episode and long-awaited. Um, we have Boston Celtics assistant coach, but newly hired Maine Celtics, their G League affiliate, uh, general manager, Jarrell Christian. Um, we talk about it whenever we start our conversation, but this is something that really was been in the works for months now. And, you know, just with his busy schedule, Celtics making it all the way to the finals and summer league coming up or draft and summer league coming up just back to back right after that. We're just finally able to make it happen. So you know, I'm glad that we were able to make it happen. Um, I don't think anything was wrong, but in case it was, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. If you ever catch me, maybe like stuttering at some point that, Normally, I wouldn't do. I just had my wisdom teeth taken out not even eight hours ago at this point. So, you know, bear with me if there ever is a time where you sit there and think, oh, that's it's a little off from his normal self. But I, I think it's all okay, though. Um, but just wanted to let you guys know that recording this on a Tuesday night. It was all kind of quick. Found out I had to get my wisdom teeth out, but I was not going to miss this interview with Jarrell and have to reschedule after all the time that we went through trying to set this up. So I'm glad we were able to make it happen. Um, you know, he sh- Jarrell shares some really cool insight in this podcast, um, just talking a lot about his journey, um, some things about the G League and how he's been involved with that, how he's went from coaching to this new front office role. Um, then we talk about, because this was the first year with the Celtics, and we talk about, just the special season they had, the turnaround they had, special players, the young duo that they have, along with other core pieces, um, the specialties of Ime Udoka, uh, Brad Stevens, just just the organization top to bottom is as good as it gets. And, you know, with Jarrell in this conversation here, we talk about it all. Um, I, I know that a question is going to be beforehand, oh, do you ask him about the recent stuff with Kevin Durant? No, I mean, I don't. and you know, all things disclosed. There's times when I feel like I maybe can whenever I have guys in this field come on, and there's times where I feel like I can't. And, you know, this was not one of those situations where it was appropriate to bring it up on the podcast, nor would it have been a good situation to ask Jarrell something along those lines. So whether we know if that offer was made or if it even was made, um, that's not – that's not what we get to in this podcast. And maybe we find out more details about it going forward from either Adrian Wojnarowski or Shams. But that's not something that we discuss here. And what we discuss here is how special of a team that the Boston Celtics are currently and the potential that they have going the next year and the special season that they just had this year. Um, you know, I, I think that Boston has set themselves up well to where if they do trade for Kevin Durant, you're getting a top player in the world and a top 12 player ever, and he's going to be alongside Jason Tatum. Um, if you don't get Kevin Durant, you're still probably the favorites in the East. You just went to the finals and got even better. You know, this team's in perfect condition here. So is it really a big deal, in my opinion, whether the tradesmen or not? Not really. And so that's why I think they have the luxury of kind of sitting back and just evaluating regardless. Um, bottom line is, is that they have a duo that's 25 and under, and they have great pieces around them. And if the Nets are asking for more, then there's no sense in the Celtics doing so. So, um, you know, just kind of want to talk about that before we get into it. You know, like I said, 
uh, he goes into a lot and you know we we have a great conversation about an hour I think I'd have to look to be exactly right but talk about the G League stuff he also we don't we don't get into it too much only because um part of his time in the G League he was with Oklahoma City and with Washington but with Washington um Jason was on earlier and if you guys haven't heard that please go listen to his podcast but we talk a lot about Washington with Jason and so I didn't feel like it was going to be worth it to go back into Washington stuff whenever we had so much to talk about with Boston, uh, having the luxury of having an assistant coach from their roster this past year to a team that just made the NBA finals. So glad we were able to make it happen. And, you know, I won't, there's no point in me to keep going on. So now I'm glad to introduce Jarrell Christian and get you guys into this interview. And now we're super excited to bring on Boston. So, well, I, I struggle to find the new title now. You have to help me out. But formally, until about a week ago, Boston Celtics assistant and Maine Red Claws head coach, Jarrell Christian, but has now been put into a front office role. So, Jarrell, thanks for coming on. And can you explain to us what your new role is going to be within the organization? Yeah. So, um, this past season, you know, I served as the uh, – the G League affiliate, Maine Celtics head coach. Um, and so it's one of those things where we've kind of rebranded over the years from the Maine Red Claws to the Maine Celtics. Oh, okay, my so, bad, my bad. No, no. So I got to be the first ever Maine Celtics uh, head coach, which is something that I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, but now my new, my new title, my new role will be the uh, general manager of the Maine Celtics. Um, so I'm excited to get that going and obviously changing gears and, and getting into the front office is going to be a challenge, but, you know, I'm up for it. Yeah, guys, uh, getting drill on here, it's something I've had planned for, I guess, a few months now. Been in constant contact. Uh, obviously, hectic schedules and stuff. Um, finally, we're able to make it work, so I'm excited, I'm excited that you can come on today. Um, we just want to talk about a few different things. You know, Boston's past season, the success that they had, you know, how they've had a great offseason, just some of Darrell's previous time, and some time just kind of like him explaining his G League experience as well, just because I feel like, the G League is a topic that's not known as well by the NBA fans and what they keep up with. I don't think that they realize how important that the G League truly is. Um, I was able to get in contact with Jarrell through a uh, mutual contact. Um, as you guys know, I am a student assistant for a Division Three uh, men's basketball program, and Jarrell actually came from the Division Three route. So we were able to get plugged in through a contact there. Uh, Jarrell, can you just tell us a little bit about your playing background and, you know, how your D3 experience was and uh, what got you from going to play a D3 to ending up where you are now in the NBA? Yeah, you know, I always say it's um, surrounding myself with the right people at the right time. It's kind of how I got here. Um, so I played Division three basketball uh, at Emory and Henry College um, for four years. I always joked that I wasn't the best player on the team ever, but I was just one of those guys that was just a solid player, uh, wanted to make sure his teammates were in positions to be successful. Uh, I played with 4,000-point scores in my time there. Um, so I was in charge of making sure those guys were, were happy and getting the ball in the positions that they could be successful and make some shots. Um, and then from there, I went on to you know, be a Division II assistant coach at Tusculum College at the time. Um, and then I went back to Emory and Henry and Randolph-Macon, respectively, uh, for four years. Um, so I've spent, you know, 
five years basically in Division Two, Division Three as an assistant coach before making a jump uh, to the G League, and that's kind of how uh, my professional um, coaching kind of got started. Now, I, from what I could find, did you spend some time with both Oklahoma City's affiliate and Washington's affiliate? Correct. So I spent uh, my first four years in the professional ranks was as an assistant, um, assistant coach with Oklahoma City Blue, which is the affiliate of Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, so I did that for four years um, before I got an opportunity to be the Washington Wizards G League affiliate head coach. Um, so I got to be an assistant for four years in OKC and I took over uh, for an expansion team in D.C. and I was their head coach uh, for a season before being bumped up. Uh, to the Wizards as an assistant. Okay. Um, and, I mean, I know you know him because he told me that, that he knows you, but uh, a friend of mine, uh, Chasen Allen, that's with Milwaukee, was he with you in Washington? Yeah. You know, Chasen was uh, one of my first hires when I was in Washington. At that time, he was at Miami um, in a player development role. Um, and so he's already stayed in touch with me when I was an assistant in OKC. So, uh, when I got the job in D.C., he was one of the first people I called. I knew he was great with the relationship aspect of being able to relate to players, um, and I knew he worked his butt off. Um, so I just thought it would be a good fit to kind of get him into the professional ranks. So I'm happy that he took a you know a chance in, in helping me out my first you know first season being a head coach. Yeah. Um, Chasen was on this pod, I don't know, two months ago, and – and when I told him that I'd reached out to you, he was telling me how much I was going to enjoy the conversation with you as well. So I actually talked to Chase last night for almost 30 minutes. You know, he's a good friend of mine. Obviously, I'm excited to see him um, become a head coach, you know, and he's going to do great things in this thing. So I'm excited for him. And again, I'm just grateful that he was able to take a chance and, and be a part of my staff a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's neat. I mean, it's cool for me to be able to talk to some of you guys now through doing my own podcast. But, like, you see a lot of, in the past year or two, the, like, new coaches that have been hired that, are, that haven't been coming from, like, prior head coaching experience because it kind of seemed for a while that the league was just kind of recycling dudes. And at times, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes I think you do need change. And now you're seeing the success from some of these new guys coming in. And it just kind of reminds you, like, there's only 30 of these jobs available and there's no telling how many minds there are out there that are capable of being really good at, their, at this job. For sure. I mean, I think you hit it, you know, on the head just because um, there are so many assistants, say there's, you know, five assistants in waiting to be a head coach. And like you said, it's only 30 head coaching opportunities available, you know, so you've got a lot of people in waiting um, who are willing to do the job and capable of doing the job. Um, and, and, you know, I give a lot of credit to, to people in um, positions to make decisions such as a Brad Stevens, you know, he's hiring guys. And, you know, Ime Udoka, who's never been a head coach before to lead the franchise. He's uh, he's hiring people like me to be a general manager who's never done it before. So it really just takes um, one person to take a chance on you, and, and you never really know what happens after that. But it just starts with the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, sorry if you already mentioned it earlier, but how long have you been with Boston again? I uh, just finished up my first season. So oh, last okay. season was my first one. I was the head coach, and then obviously just kind of got promoted to being the general manager all within, <laughs> you know, 11 months of each other. So you were coming in as like the entire shift was changing of like Danny Ainge was gone, Brad Stevens bumps up to GM, and then they hire Ime Udoka. Absolutely. And it's one of those things where obviously, you know, the Celtics have a rich tradition and, and legacy in itself, you know. So like I said, just 
having being around Ime and his staff when they're trying to transition into, you know, finding their voices, um, finding their style of play, you know, me being there on day one, being with them in trading camp really helped me when it was my time to kind of go to Maine and, and lead the group and, you know, kind of doing the same exact thing that they were doing in Boston in terms of style of play and terminology. So I'm grateful. I'm thankful that Brad kind of entrusted me in being able to do that. But I'm also thankful for Ime, you know, opening the doors for his coaches meetings and practices for myself and my staff. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know, you know it's been one year, but I still think that you probably would have great things to say. I mean, from the outside, I mean, it really looks like already in year one, you can identify Ime as like elite of the elite and in this top tier of coaches currently in the league. What can you say about Ime and just kind of like the mentor he's been or just to be around him and see how he works in the one year that you've been there with him? You know, one thing I, I think that kind of gets lost in first time head coaches um, is just continuing to do what you did well as an assistant coach. You know, sometimes you can get so lost in the task of being a head coach and the media obligations and, and all the other things that, you know, kind of consume the head coach role. But the one thing that I think Ime has always done a great job of just building relationships with players. Um, and that's something that he's continued to do as a head coach. And I think when you can build positive um, and foster positive relationships with your players, it's just that much easier to hold them accountable. And that's the one thing that, that I can take away with Ime is that, you know, he builds relationships with his players and they trust that he's going to be honest. He's going to be a truth teller. Now, obviously, since you haven't like been firsthand with Pop, this would probably be harder to answer. But with him coming from Pop Fizz's coaching tree, has he shared anything with you guys about like what he maybe carries over from Coach Pop? Or is he just kind of like really soaked in a lot and really just kind of formed in not to say that he's not his own person, but just like has he really branched into his own or does he tell you guys things that he's carried over and does from his time with Pop? Yeah, no, I think a lot of it just comes from the, the work ethic. You know, I had a chance to work closely with Will Hardy, who was on our staff, who also comes from, from the San Antonio Pop tree. Um, and the one thing I take away from both of them is that they're just genuine people. You know, they're not going to try to be anybody that they're not. Um, they're going to coach towards their strengths. They're going to build relationships and take time to do it you know it's not something that happens overnight and the other part i take from both of them is that they don't take themselves too seriously you know they know when to have fun they know when to joke um but they also can do the same in, in holding players accountable when it's time to get serious yeah and uh for those that don't know will hardy just became the utah jazz's head coach um just real quick since you were able to mention him um how happy were you guys for him whenever you got that news and what can you say uh, to speak on his behalf as how he'll be as he enters that head coaching role? Yeah, I mean, I think he's going to be great just because of what I said. You know, he's able to build relationships, um, which I think is a huge part of being a head coach. You know, he's going to have some some lumps and some hurdles. Obviously, he's never done it before, just like Ime did early in the year. Um, but I think he is a guy that's going to be able to, like, connect the entire organization from departments, you know, whether it's medical, um, whether it's strength conditioning, whether it's PR. Like, he's just going to be a person that people enjoy being around on a daily basis. So not sure what's going to end up happening with their roster, um, but I know he's going to do everything in his power to, to bring everybody together. And people are really going to enjoy being in his presence on a daily basis. I will say that, you know, to kind of branching off what you're saying about their roster and what's going on, they did already move Rudy Gobert. I do think that, you know, whatever happens with Don Mitchell or the roster around him, if they do keep him, I do think it helps whenever you've got a proven general manager like he does or a guy up in the front office like he does with Danny Ainge. So 
it, you know, that, that can mean just as much as anything else. So it's good for him to have that type of guy in there. And speaking of guys in the front office, with you having Brad Stevens, you know, I think it was a shocking move uh, whenever he kind of – when Danny Ainge was gone and then Brad stepped into the front office role. Like, what can you say about Brad in general? Because I think it's pretty clear about a year in that, like, he's really good at this job. I mean, what can you speak as him? As I mean, I'm just, like, does he give you guys some advice, like coaching advice as well? Because he's pretty successful in that field as well. Yeah, no, I mean, the thing that, you know, I've always respected about Brad is that it, it seems like, you know, he's – at times he's playing chess when everybody else is playing checkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the flip side, he's able to keep things very simple. Um, he's able to have open lines of communication so everybody's on the same page. You know, um, I, I think back to when I was interviewing with him a year ago for the G League head coach position, um, he asked me if, you know – in the future, would I be open to being in the front office? And at the time, nobody had ever asked me that. Like, here I am interviewing for a head coach position, and the guy that's interviewing me has asked me, would I be interested in the front office? So it's just like he sees things, you know, two steps ahead of everybody else. And so fast forward to a week ago, and he asked me the same question, you know, would you be interested in the front office? And it wasn't something that I'd heard for the first time because he had mentioned it, you know, a year ago. And so it's just him having a good feel for people, um, having a good pulse on the situation and what the organization needs. So when it comes to the coaching aspect, you know, he's around, you know, all the practices. He's, in, he's there for workouts, watching, evaluating. Um, and for me personally, um, quick story. So we were in, in Maine playing one of our games and, you know, Brad was courtside watching the game. Um, and we we're playing, I can't remember who it was, but it was a tougher, tougher opponent. Um, and, and we had scored on like a timeout play where it was just something simple that I drew up, like a, you know, a flex action or a flex cut or something very simple. Um, and, you know, he came down at halftime to, you know, get concessions or whatever it was. And he walked by me. He was like, that flex cut is really going to be open in the second half. And I was just like, all right, cool. <laughs> so it was one of those things like, you know, he's really watching the game more so as like a coach. Um, opposed to maybe sometimes that you know a front office guy might be watching so he watches it from a different lens which is which is interesting and which is why I respect the crap out of him yeah no that, that that's a pretty cool story um and then you know as you're going in this front office role now I, I don't doubt that just like whenever I've talked with you know other guys whether it was Chasen or with Josh Henderson that's in Memphis you know I'm, the ultimate goal is to keep progressing and I guess my question to you and I mean maybe it's either one is now that you're taking a front office role, you know, which one kind of intrigues you more long-term if you think you know yet, whether yeah. it's coaching or front office? And I've got no idea, to be honest with you, but I just know when, when this opportunity presented itself, um, it was something that was intriguing. You know, I've been, uh, I've been coaching basketball for 13 years, and it's the only thing I've known since graduating college. Um, so I don't know. You know, I, I'm interested to see how I take a liking to this new position. Um, I would say the toughest part about the job right now is, you know, I've probably talked to more agents in the last two hours than I have in the last two decades. Um, so there's a lot more phone calls to be made. There's a lot of hard work that goes into it um, that people don't realize. Um, but the other part is, you know, when once you're coaching for such a long time, you kind of know what your daily routine is, no matter where you go. You know, you could be in college, you could be at different stops in the league. You kind of know what your normal day-to-day is going to look like. But for me now, 
I've got no idea what this front office saying, what this GM looks like. Um, so I'm still trying to figure that piece out. Um, but I'm excited for the opportunity, like I said before. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I can only imagine, maybe I'm completely wrong here, but like, especially being in the front office in the G League role, where there's so many guys just trying to get the opportunity, I'm sure you, like you said, I'm sure that's like almost as nonstop, if not more nonstop phone calls than the actual like NBA front office. Absolutely. I mean, just because, you know, obviously the, the NBA folks, they do their due diligence and they've got a lot of different departments. Um, but on the G League side, usually and typically um, it's not as, as resource as it is with the NBA, you know, so it would be myself and assistant GM um, basically doing the, the day-to-day operations, you know, so it's a smaller operations on the, on the, on the home front in, in that regard. Um, but also this past season, the G League, we went through 36 players. And you can basically only have, you know, 10 players in two, two ways, you know. So you have 12 players on a roster at any given time. And we're able to go through 36 of them, you know. So the constant turnover um, and the players that are getting called up, players on assignment, trying to find players to replace them that are high caliber, high, high quality, it's tough, you know. So this, this is going to be a role that is difficult. Um, but just like in the NBA, you're going to have your challenges on a daily basis regardless. Yeah, and, and Jason kind of touched on this whenever he came on, and I know that that has to be quite the challenge to go through, like you said, 36 players, but it also has to feel somewhat, somewhat rewarding because it's like you are getting those guys in and getting call-ups, and so that's ultimately the goal in the G League. Yeah, and I think the other part of that is, you know, not just for your, for your team, for your players, but for your staff, you know, being able to get your coaches, your, you know, trainers, get those guys opportunities at the next level at the NBA is also was something that I was really, um, you know, really critical of. You know, I wanted to make sure that my staff after this, after last season, they were going to be put in a position to be successful at the next level. And so thankfully, um, we're able to get one of our assistants bumped up to be on the player development side with Boston Celtics. And obviously our associate head coach from last season is now going to be the head coach. So hopefully I can continue to bump those guys up. Just like, you know, Chase Allen uh, was able to get an opportunity after he left us as well. That's awesome. And so, you know, I'm glad that we were able to talk some about the G League. Uh, just one last question about the G League, though, before we kind of get on to this Celtic season and how special it was and kind of moving forward in the next season. Well, just like, what can you say about the G League or what could you maybe point towards in the G League that like a casual NBA fan would have no idea of its importance to the NBA, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, I mean, I think the biggest thing for the G League is that it's able to get, you know, some of the guys that aren't necessarily um, in the rotation at the NBA level, it's, you're able to send them to the G League and let them get game reps. Because one thing I don't know if the normal fan actually realizes, but like once the NBA season gets underway, there's not a lot of practice time. There's not a lot of five on five. There's not a lot of scrimmage and there's not a lot of live play. Um, a lot of the times it's just, you know, one-on-one workouts with the coach, um, it's shooting workouts, it's things of that nature. And so those players who aren't necessarily getting, you know, into the rotation on, on the game night, they're not getting up and down. They're not working on their cardio in five on five, you know, game reps. So I think the G League um, really helps players with that, you know, helps them stay conditioned for one, um, but it also helps them stay confident. You know, you and I both know that confidence goes a long way in this game. And then, I, you know, one final question just comes to my head. What, as, as someone who has been coaching the G League and is now in a front office role and has been in the NBA as well, 
when you're watching G League games or watching players in the G League, what are the things that you're looking for that you know will translate to the league itself? Yeah, for me, you know, one thing that I've always talked to my teams about is that, you know, you, we can't control when you get a call up. We can't control if you get a call up to a different NBA team. Um, so the only thing that we can really control is our attitude, our effort, and how we play, you know. And so the things that we always talk about is, like, can you be a good teammate? Can you basket cut? Can you screen for a teammate? Can you get your teammates open? Um, because those things translate. You know, I think it speaks to the, the IQ of a player, um, but it also speaks to, you know, the unselfishness of a player. You know, when the, once they get an opportunity at the NBA level, you know, they're not going to be asked to score 25 a night. You know, they're going to be asked to play off of a, a Jason Tatum. They're going to be asked to play off of those types of guys. And having a good, having an IQ where you can play off of really good players, I think is the one thing that translates especially. Yeah. Uh, glad you were able to say that because, you know, I, I think that there's a misconception. Summer League is a good example as well of like the casual viewer can kind of just watch and, you know, somebody may put up 28 in a game and then they may wonder like why that person isn't going up, but it's like there's so much more to it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times that guy who's, you know, scoring 28, you know, um, would have a better chance or opportunity to go overseas and be a leading scorer on a team over there and make a lot of money, you know, because a lot of, a lot of times that guy isn't going to be asked to go up to the NBA team and score 28. They've already got a guy who can do that. They've already got all-stars and franchise players. So um, the thing that the NBA is really looking for is guys that can complement their, their superstars. Yeah. Um, so, you know, glad you were able to touch on that, but now I just want to kind of go forward into the special season that you guys were able to have, even with everybody at still such a young age, you know, besides Al Horford. But, I mean, the majority of the core still being, I think, for the most part, like 27, 28 or even younger. Um, you know, what did this year's run mean, and, and what does it mean for you guys going forward? Just kind of like a broad question before we get into some specifics. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it you know, showed us that we could do it. Like, we're capable of doing it, you know. But um, just like any NBA season, you know, you're going to have – your highs, you're going to have your lows, you're going to have some adversity. Um, but I think the teams that can fight and overcome that adversity, speak towards that adversity in the locker room and fix it um, within themselves are the teams that give them themselves the best chance of winning a championship. Um, and that was one thing that I thought our guys did a really good job of was staying connected, staying together. Um, and we saw, you know, last part of the season, they really turned it over and, and became one of the best defenses, if not the best defense um, in the league at that time. What do you think it was early on, and why do you think things just didn't click? Because they obviously – once you guys started clicking, I think it was in, like, late January. Like, once you guys started clicking, it was crazy. So so why do you think it took until that point to really get to where you guys ended up finishing the season at? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was just, um, you know, getting healthy. You know, there are a lot of injuries. There are a lot of guys that are banged up. Or some guys are out with COVID, you know, so many things were going on early in the season and not just with us, with a lot of teams around the league, you know, obviously um, the G league benefited from that and being able to get a lot of their guys called up because of what was happening at the NBA level. Um, but, but, you know, with the new coach, new system, new staff, it was just going to take time, you know, and the thing that I always give EMA and his staff a lot of credit for is that, you know, they didn't let that group fracture, you know, obviously, um, Brad made some changes, um, got some ups, got some guys in that could really help in terms of Derek White um, and even Daniel Tice at times was able to help. 
Um, so just being able to, to stay together and stay connected is, you know, is what I don't think that that group of individuals gets enough credit for. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, one of the questions going into the season, even though I think it is a question that gets asked about too many teams sometimes, I personally am a Clippers fan, and I always have hated whenever this gets brought up, and the same question would get asked for the Celtics, is like, oh, well, I don't know about them because they don't have a traditional point guard. And then you kind of saw the ascension of Jason Tatum as a playmaker. Was that something that Ime kind of envisioned from the beginning? Or was that something that when everything clicked at midseason, he was like, this is working? Yeah, I mean, I think that's just part of, you know, young players' development and evolution in, in this game is being able to make your teammates better. You know, and I do think the point guard is a, a special position. Um, and it's important, um, but I also think leadership is even more important. You know, yeah. if you can have one guy that can kind of take the leadership role, um, some, one guy that can organize their teammates on the floor um, in game when things start to get a little tough or, or start to go sideways. Um, if you just have one guy, one voice, one guy that's willing to step up and make the right play, even if it's not for themselves, just make the right play for the team, um, do what the game calls for. I think that is the most important thing. And, you know, obviously Jalen and Jason, those guys did a great job down the stretch of just doing that, you know, and obviously having a Marcus and an Al, those guys are really, really good connectors. You know, they play hard, they play the right way, um, and they're not afraid of the moment. Yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, both both JT and JB right there. You know, both at the age of like 25 and 24, I think it still gets overlooked by a lot of people, like just how young these two are. And so, like, what can you say about this duo and just how special they are already and, like, what they have the potential to maybe become one day? Yeah. I mean, I mean just, like, just before you get going, like, again, I want to reiterate, I don't think people realize that, like, what history tells you and these guys' progressions, that truly the best is probably yet to come with these two. Yeah. No, they're, they're proven winners. You know, they've been to the conference finals. Um, now they've been to the NBA finals, you know, it's, it's, they've accomplished so much together at a young age, more so than a lot of people in this league, you know, and the thing that I like about both of them is that they just are good people, <laughs> you know, like they come to work and you actually enjoy being around them, you know, um, and like I said, they're young, they're still growing, they're still developing. Um, with that being said, you know, I think the best is yet to come with those two guys. Um, I'm just excited to be around and watch it. Yeah. Um, Random question here. Have you had the privilege of meeting Deuce? I have met Deuce. Deuce <laughs> is usually uh, in the locker room post game, and you know, everybody loves Deuce in, in Boston. So I'm sure he can go out and get dinner anywhere he wants for free more easier than I could. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, it's always funny to just see social media posts and stuff of Deuce just being like the star of the. <laughs> He's a man. Everybody loves Deuce, you know, obviously, and all the players know him. He's just, you know, he's just another one of the guys. The funny, the funniest one I'll always remember was, like, Grant Williams was, like, trying to go, like, give him a fist bump or dap him up or whatever after a win. And he was, like, giving everybody one, and then he just would not give Grant Williams. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, par for, that's par for the course with Grant, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, you also mentioned – uh, other guys along with the two J's and uh, you know your core matters you're not going to win a championship with one person you're not going to win a championship with two people it takes an entire team and you guys have the pieces to do it I mean you were as close as it gets this year um 
you know, just going specifically into some of those other guys, the first guy I want to mention is Rob Williams. And I just think it's like you you saw the spurts of what he was capable of in prior years. It was just a knee thing. And, like, when is he going to be healthy? And, you know, even though he wasn't necessarily healthy this year, it's like he was a lot healthier than prior years. And you saw his clear impact when he was able to just even play, like, 25 minutes. And I think another big thing for him is I think he's such an underrated, like, passer, especially, like, in the high post. And so – and just his effect defensively, like, what can you say about him and how maybe underappreciated he might be to everybody outside the Celtics organization? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there it's no secret why the Celtics had one of the best defenses in the league. You know, when you've got Rob Williams protecting the rim at a high level, you know, he's elite at that. Um, but even offensively, you know, guys get into the paint, um, they draw a second defender, and you just throw it up to the rim, and he's going to go get it. You know, I think that's underrated skill. It's just being able to be an outlet for guys. You know, a vertical threat, um, a vertical rim threat is so invaluable um, at this level, you know. So when you've got those guys, you know, going to garner double teams or whatever it may be, it's just going to be on them to continue to make the right play. And for Rob, you know, it was fun to watch him grow and develop this year um, in that regard. You know, obviously, like I said, he's one of the best rim protectors in the game. And that's something that, you know, helps any defense now when he got hurt like right before the playoffs because you guys had quite literally turned into my title pick and you still were my title pick all throughout the playoffs I mean you know but like he got hurt so late in the regular season did you guys in the organization like like because I remember I remember like the next day or whatever there was the report of like he might be able to come back did you guys expect that he would be back as early as he was, like in that Nets series? I think it was like game three or four. Yeah, I mean, you never really know, you know. Um, with injuries at this level, you know, people's bodies respond differently. Um, and it's just one of the things that I've learned about the playoffs is just how much you get beat up from series to series, from game to game. You know, that was something that, you know, obviously um, Rob had missing games. Um Marks had missed some games, you know, so we had a number of people. Derek White was gone for a game. So we just had a number of people throughout the course of the playoffs that missed some games, missed some time. And so that was one, one of my takeaways was just how, how durable you have to be to get through the playoffs and the mental stress and, and physical stress that it has on your body to get to the finals. And, you know, we get to the finals and our reward is, you know, the Golden State Warriors. And, <laughs> you know, they're, uh, they're obviously – championship level team and so you have to really be locked in and hopefully you're you're healthier than they are when you get to when you get to face them yeah so like I don't know what you can and can't say on this topic because you, prior people that I've had on the podcast you know you just never know and even whenever I've talked with you it's just the stuff with PR you just never know what what you may have to go around but Obviously, I can't. I won't say that like anybody is probably one hundred percent come playoff time, but what what can you maybe say? And if you can't say anything at all, I get it. But what can you maybe say about Rob and what his status was when he did come back? Yeah, I mean the thing that I respect so much about Rob is that at that point in the season, everybody's beat up, everybody's banged up. Um, but to watch him, you know, go through all the things he had to go through. Um, just to be ready to play in games, you know, and just to give him, himself a chance 
to, to suit up and help his teammates. You know, something that I have a, a ton of respect for him. And, and just watching him work in the training room, watching work on the court, watch him work in the weight room, just to get himself ready to compete, you know, when he was injured and, and questionable. Um, so he was going to do everything in his power to, to, to fight, to be there for his teammates. And that's the one thing I take away from, from him in that regard. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and, you know, two other guys that we mentioned were both Marcus Smart and Al Horford, two guys that are – I mean, I'm not to say the other guys aren't leaders on this team, but two guys that are clear – just like great leaders on the team. Um, what can you speak about those two and what they bring to the table as some of the older guys on the team that do come off to the outsiders as two of the most important leaders on the team? Yeah, I mean, the thing that, you know, I always kind of go back to, like I mentioned before, is just having someone on the floor when things are a little bit chaotic, when things are a little bit messed up, somebody that can just be a calming presence, you know, and that's what Al does. Um, whether it's making a big shot or coming up with a big defensive stance, um, just someone that can like weather the storm um, and, and not lose their mind, you know, and obviously Marcus being um, defensive player of the year, he's able to do that just with his activity um, and effort defensively, you know, and I think those two are, you know, what they bring to the team, what they bring to the organization is so special and so important just because they're two common presence when it comes to those two types of things. Yeah, Al, Al definitely seems like one of the best probably locker room guys possible to have in the entire NBA. Yeah, I mean, he's just a high character guy. You know, obviously he's an older, he's an older vet. Um, he's been through a lot of situations. He's been through a lot of playoff series. Um, and he knows what it takes to win, you know. And I think the one thing that he, he brings to the locker room is that he knows how hard it is to win. You know, when you have those opportunities, you have to capitalize on it. And he's one of the ones that's most vocal about it. You know, we can't relax. We can't let up. We got to keep going. Like, he's one of those guys that understands how big the moment is. And he's not afraid to vocalize that. And Marcus, you know, just just one defensive player of the year. I think he genuinely can guard one through five. And, I mean, like, I'm not just saying that from what I watch and, you know, what was on display all season and all playoffs. What can you say to him that makes him such a special defender? Like from the coach's point of view and seeing him practice every day, obviously we see him from the outside just getting in people's stuff. But like the things as an off-the-ball defender and even some of the things as an on-the-ball defender that maybe we don't notice, what can you say is what makes him so special on that end of the floor? Yeah, I mean, he just has unbelievable instincts as it comes, um, you know, whether a guy's dribbling, when he's going to attack the, the ball handler, when he's going to attack the ball, you know, just like the way he sees the game is special. You know, I found my, myself picking his brain at times, you know, just because I want to know how I can teach, you know, defense better. Um, and, and so he's always extremely coachable. Um, and he's always – he wants to do whatever's best for the team. You know, it doesn't matter if he's got a guard. Like you mentioned, he can guard one through five. He, he, he plays with that chip on his shoulder, um, and he likes physicality. He likes contact. You know, he's not going to shy away from that. Um, but he also knows how to bait some guys. and He knows when to use his quickness. He knows when to use his strength. And I think um, him being able to get a good feel and a good read on who he's guarding and what, you know, he can do to kind of frustrate those guys and what he can do to kind of take away their strengths is what makes him defense player of the year. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I lost my train of thought here, but if it comes back, I'll ask. But 
Last thing I want to ask before we get into the playoff run is I uh, thought you guys made a great trade deadline for Derek White. I know you made the move for Tice as well, but just wanted to talk about uh, Derek White specifically. You know, as soon as that trade was made, I thought it was arguably the best defensive backcourt in the NBA whenever they were both on the floor together. Um, was that a move that you guys saw coming, or did Brad just kind of get it in the works right at the deadline? Yeah, you know, at that point, um, I was up in Maine, so I wasn't necessarily around for those conversations or any of that. And I was, you know, an hour and a half away in Maine trying to figure out how to, um, you know, get our G League guys ready to compete at a high level, you know. But we knew that there was probably going to be some types of change, you know, just like there is in you know, any, many organiza organizations at that time. Um, but the thing I talk, I love about Brad is that he's always going to do his best for the organization. And like I said, he sees the game from a coaching standpoint, you know, and he's got a good feel for what the team needs. Um, he's got a good pulse on, on what the locker room needs. Um, and he's got a good pulse on, you know, JT and JB. You know, he's coached them. So he knows what is needed to make those guys successful and what needs to be around them. Yeah. Um, and so obviously after that trade deadline and you guys got hot, and you clearly had one of the best groups overall in the NBA heading into the playoffs, probably the hottest team going into the playoffs. You know, there was the I – mean, we're not going to – this isn't shade or anything, but there was the common thing that people were floating around that the Bucks lost that last regular season game to avoid a potential Nets matchup, and that that essentially meant because you guys won your last – correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the way it was going to shape up was – if you guys won, then you – something like if you guys won, you were the two seed. Maybe it was if you won and Milwaukee won, Milwaukee was two seed. But if you and Milwaukee lost, then Philadelphia was the two seed. Like it was like right. that close. You know, the East was so close going into the last few weeks. Honestly, the whole season. But <laughs> but yeah. but the last few weeks specifically. And so it ended up being you guys were the two seed. And a lot of people were really – really felt comfortable picking you guys like myself going into that series once we figured out the Nets won the first play-in game because of how confidently you guys, like, won that game, that last game. You played Memphis, I think, the last game of the regular season, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. And after you guys won that one, you know, it just kind of felt like this team isn't scared of anybody. And, you know, you go into that series, and game one was an absolute thriller. I mean, just from start to finish. And to end on such a play like that, Obviously, I have no doubt in my mind that you guys went into that series knowing you could win. But what was it about coming out of that first game with a win? Like, like we can do this. We don't care who they have on the other side. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that comes from Ime, you know, and the messaging he had, um, you know, throughout the, the whole season is, you know, we're, we're not afraid of anybody. Um, we're not ducking anybody. You know, we know that we are – um, a talented team, you know, we know that our defense travels. So we're going to give ourselves um, a chance to win no matter who we're playing. Um, and I think with that focus, you know, I think, you know, they had the confidence of going in anywhere and winning. Um, and I think the, you know, one thing I take away from the, the playoff run is that like every game is like a different game. Like you can't really bring in momentum from the last game. It's one of those things like, you know, it's a new game, it's a new series, it's new, um, for everyone, it's zero zero, so to speak. Um, and, and the team that you know makes the adjustments or don't make the adjustments are the team that's usually going to be the one that's going to have the best chance of winning. Um, and so I think with that first win and, and just watching how frustrated 
you know, a Durant and a Irving and those guys were was basically all of our defense. You know, that's what a good defense was meant to do. And I think with a great game plan and frustrating those guys, and I think it really uh, fueled the team. As you know, we lock into the game plan. We can win. We can beat anybody. Yeah, and I mean, just to kind of refresh some people's brains here, in that game one, especially in the fourth quarter, Kyrie Irving was having quite the game. And I remember just coming out of that game thinking, you know, the Celtics weren't really having the blitz a lot. They were able to guard Kyrie and KD one-on-one. And if you're able to do that and do it effectively, it's going to be hard for a team like that with the amount of isolation they run compared to other teams to keep scoring yeah. effectively. And it also just kind of hurt them because, you know, they were missing a guy like Ben Simmons didn't get to play for them the entire year. And so they really did rely on a short roll of Bruce Brown a lot off of those blitzes. And he was, in a sense, kind of taken away because of the lack of blitzing from you guys. And so, like, to me, it was if they can guard Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving like that, especially because, you know, KD was playing 40 minutes a night for a whole month before the playoffs, like, if they were going to be able to be up in him, it seemed like there was a chance for success there. So, like, when I saw that one and saw that Kyrie played that well and how well your guys' defensive game plan was working, I was like, this isn't looking good for Brooklyn. So, you know, what can you speak as to your all's individual defense among all the guys you have? I mean, in case people forget, because sometimes playing time skews depending on the series, like – Jason Tatum, although he was great all playoff run, was incredible on Kevin Durant in that series. And Grant Williams was awesome in that series on different guys. And you know, obviously Marcus Smart was awesome like he was all playoff run. Like what can you speak as to each one of those guys' individual defense, specifically in that series? Because to me, don't get me wrong, you guys had a great playoff run. But there's that series specifically with two players as gifted as those two, to be able to kind of – limit them as much as you guys did was so impressive yeah I mean as it relates to those three guys you know they all bring um something different you know JT obviously has his length he can frustrate a lot of guys can test a lot of shots um Grant is able to just be physical and beat up guys and absorb contact um, but he's also got some really good lateral quickness and able to contest guys um and, and then Marcus is just able to get up under guys and frustrate them and pester them um and so that was kind of the approach that we took coming going into that playoff series was, you know, everybody's going to have a crack at it. You know, everybody's going to have their chance of, of frustrating um, each one of these guys. And I always kind of equate it to, you know, when you're in practice and you're just playing, um, you know, one on one and you got to go through four or five different guys before you can get off. You got to get a stop. You know how tough and competitive those drills usually are in a practice setting. That was kind of the same mentality as, you know, this possession, it might be a, a KD going against Grant. All right, next possession, now he's going to have to see another body. So it just always gave him different looks, you know, and to that, they couldn't really get comfortable. Um, and it was a team defense effort. You know, there was a lot of guys that were in the gaps, helping, ready to show a crowd and ready to contest. So it was a, a complete team effort, but those guys did an unbelievable um, job on the ball, not giving up easy shots and really frustrating them on the ball. Yeah. Um, you guys ended up pulling off a sweep in that series. Um, you know, every game seemed like it was going to come down to the wire, but, hey, a sweep's a sweep. And it got you out to the first round early, and Rob was able to come back. And then you entered the second round knowing you were going to have a tough challenge um, with the defending champions. And I, I know Chris Middleton 
was hurt, but I still think there's no underestimating a team like that. And, you know, I just, it's like one of those things, yes, was it very unfortunate for them that Chris Middleton was hurt? Yeah, of course. But they do have another player like Drew Holiday that is more than capable of kind of, I don't want to say like filling a role because to me those two are very good in their own way, but just to be able to still be a high-level championship caliber second option. And so you guys in that series, people don't remember, down 0-1, down 2-1, down 3-2. Like never were you in control in terms of games one in the series until you won the game seven. Right. How does a team as young as you guys were maintain the mentality of kind of like no pressure, just win the next game in a situation like that against a team that is just coming off a championship? Yeah, I mean, I, I give a lot of credit to, you know, an Al Warford in those situations. You know, he was always there to to make a big play or make a big three or get a big stop or do something to get the crowd back involved and on our side. Um, you know, but a lot of that comes, like I said, those, you know, JT and JB, those guys are young, but they've been through a lot of playoff series and a lot of different situations, you know. So those guys didn't waver. They, they're going to show up. They're going to, you know, be ready for that moment. And that was just like a, a testament to them and what they've kind of been through. You know, it was easy for those guys to get down and, and get rattled. But, you know, they we felt like we were the better team collectively in that locker room. You know, we would be down, you know, um, 2 one or whatever it may be. And we still felt like we were the better team. We just had to, you know, come together and, and continue to get stops defensively. Now, Jason Tatum's game six, probably one of the greatest games I've ever watched. I mean, I'm 22 years old. I Obviously, there's people that have seen a lot more than I have. But in terms of what I've seen growing up, one of the best performances I've ever seen, where where do you personally probably rank that type of performance down 3-2 on the road? And I think you put up like 46. Like where yeah, do no, you personally rank that in terms of games you've seen? It's definitely up there. You know, um, unfortunately, I was in Oklahoma City. Um, I want to say game six when, when Clay Thompson went crazy a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so those performances are, are rare, um, but when they happen, they're truly special. And, and JT, like I said, it was just he had a feel about him going into that game that he wasn't going to let his team down. And he was going to do everything in his power to will us to a win. And that's why he's such a special player. Um, that's why he's an all-star, you know, and that's why he's going to have a longevity in this in this career. Um, and it's he's so young, you know, the best is still still yet to come with him. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I don't expect you to like comment on this. And I know you guys think very highly of your players. But, uh, you know, before we keep talking about the playoff run, Tatum is my MVP pick next year. I just think a lot of things are falling into place for him to have a very good shot at it. So I'm very excited for him. He's one of my favorite players in the NBA. Um, now, the game seven of that series was the Grant Williams game. He hit like seven threes. Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, the Bucks have this defense of not just giving up threes, but like being packed in the paint, especially whenever it comes to like league average three-point shooters or guys that don't have a high volume of three-point shots. And I mean, to them, it's very successful. I mean, they're a very successful regular season team. They're coming off championship a year ago, but like, what what was it? Because I remember there were some looks actually that Grant passed up, and he actually talked about it on Duncan Robinson's podcast recently. I mean, did it just come to a point where you guys were like, "Dude, you're gonna have to shoot the ball"? 
Yeah, I mean, they, like you said, historically those, you know, the, the Bucks defense gives up threes and they're willing to live with some threes that they're giving up. Um, and it was funny because, you know, after shoot around that day, you know, myself and, and Brad were talking um, separately from the team. And, and he said, it's going to be someone else other than JT or JB that's going to have to win the game for us. It's going to be one of the others. And we're just talking about who's going to be one of the others. And, you know, and it was just like, well, it's going to be someone who's going to be able to make threes because they're going to get wide open shots because they're going to force JT and JB to play in a crowd. And they're not going to let those guys beat them. And so it was funny that at the end of that, into that game, Brad and I looked at each other and we just, you know, said we knew it was going to happen. And it was just <laughs> someone to, to step up. And Grant is, you know, one of the most confident guys I've ever been around. Um, so it was just fitting for him to be the one to, to kind of take us over the hump in that game. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the Miami series, just a lot of weirdness to it, uh, just injuries on both sides and stuff. But just want just want to quickly bring up game seven specifically in that series. Um, you know, it looks like with like three minutes left, okay, the Celtics are going to the finals of game seven, of game seven. It's like, okay, the Celtics are going to the finals. And then we're like, oh, my gosh, like, like what's happening? Like you right there, what is going through your head as you're like, oh, my gosh, like what is happening? We just went from like a 14-point lead with three minutes left to we're down two and Jamie Butler dribbling down the floor to take a potential game-tying or game-winning shot. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where, um, you know, collectively we're all excited. We could feel it like, oh, we're about to win. We're, you know, and I do think we lost focus for a split second. And with a team like, you know, Miami, they've got so many threats. Obviously, Jimmy Butler was going crazy. Um, but but you don't want to give those guys confidence. and You don't want to take your foot off the gas. That's a little bit what we did. We kind of just like, oh, wow, we really did this, you know, and I don't want to say we started celebrating too early, but we just took our foot off the gas a little bit, and that's all you really need as an opponent uh, is to get one shot to go in and get a stop and kind of get the, you know, the the blocks to fall in that regard. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to, like, name names or anything, but there were, like, jump shots taken early in the shot clock and, like, drives on fast breaks whenever it could have been pulled out, and then – yeah, no, we, we lost our minds for about, you know, 90 <laughs> seconds work there. And, and obviously, if we could take that back, it was, you know, we, we lost our minds and played, you know, immaturely. Um, so hopefully, you know, moving forward, the group is will learn from that type of stuff. Hey, I mean, it is what it is. People can say whatever they want. You guys made it to the NBA Finals. <laughs> right. Not and, a lot of people can say that. No. And, you know, now just kind of going into the Finals, uh, you know, quite the matchup going in. It was two teams that I always looked at it this way. I was like, if you look at it on paper, in my opinion, it was always the Celtics should have won it fairly easily. But I was just like, you can't always look at it just on paper because this Warriors team is so well-constructed, they play so disciplined, and they're going to capitalize on every single mistake you make. And that was my one fear because I told you that Celtics for my title pick was I was like, I still feel good about my pick, but I know that there's times where they can turn the ball over and this team will kill you if you turn the ball over. Now, game one, you guys had this furious comeback <laughs> and Al went off and you guys ended up pulling that one out. Um, you know, game two, 
I know a lot of the NBA world was probably expecting a Warriors win just because you guys handed them their first home loss in the playoffs uh, with that game one, and they did come back and win. And so then we were kind of curious, okay, where does this series go going forward? So then we saw a great, well-put-together game by you guys to go up 2-1. And then in game four, what seemed like a game that was in your all's hands for, for the majority of the time, Steph Curry just completely shows why he is one of the game's all-time greats. And, I mean, let's just keep it real, completely steals a game in Boston to prevent a 3-1 lead. You know, what What can you say as to how much of a – I don't even want to call it a headache. I want to call it a migraine, like trying to game plan for a guy like Steph Curry. And, you know, I mean, how tough was it to just constantly go look and do like, what do we do about this guy? Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things where um, you mentioned it. Like we knew that turnover is going to be a big part of the game. You know, if we took care of the ball, we got quality shots, um, we we're going to be in position to win the game. Oh, and it was those games where we, we, you know, we did not take care of the basketball. We had high turnovers. We we're just looking at ourselves like this is what we've talked about. Like you can't do it. Like you got to be a little bit more short of the ball. You got to be a little bit more sure of your passes. Like you can't over dribble and get to a crowd. So it was one of those things like we knew exactly what we needed to do. Um, we just didn't execute it, you know, in the moment. And, and that was probably the most frustrating part. Um, like I said, I, everybody's heard Grant's um, pod and what his, what his message was, but you know, wholeheartedly in that locker room, in the organization, we felt like we were the better team. Um, we felt like we had the pieces to win. We felt like we were the better team going into that series. Um, we just did not execute well enough to, to be the best team in that series. Yeah, and I mean, we had a game five, I think I'm recalling it correctly, uh, that was somewhat low scoring for the most part. And, you know, for a guy like Tatum that kind of struggled in the series throughout, even though I personally didn't think he had what I would call a bad series in general, just kind of struggled to shoot the ball throughout the series and happened to put together probably what was his best game shooting the ball. I just feel like that was a tough way to go down 3-2. And then game six, it just, I don't know, it just kind of, it felt like at that point, especially whenever they went up, like, I don't know if Boston will recover here, and which ultimately ended up in, you know, the Golden State Warriors winning the NBA Finals. But I do think, and I mean, I want you to touch on after I get done saying this, but, you know, you can't always, like, it takes, takes baby steps. You're never going to walk in and just immediately go from step five to step one. Like, you got to go up the ladder. And you guys have continued to progressively go up that ladder. And I do think that this is an experience that will only help this core going forward. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's one of those things, like, um, like you just talked about, like, we've been to a conference finals. You know, this is our first time necessarily with this group being in an NBA finals. Um, so it's just, you know, it's a progression. Um, and I do think with that being said, we understand um, how connected, how important the execution component is to win a championship. You know, like you're going to have some guys that are going to have to step up, you know, um, other than your, your superstars. You know, I thought that um, Gary Payton II did some great things. Obviously, Jordan Poole did some great things for those guys, even Draymond in, in the last game. You know, so it's always going to be some other guys that are going to have to step up. Um, but I do think from an execution standpoint, 
I think this group really understands, you know, how connected, how important being able to execute in those situations are, you know, because I thought our defense um, was good enough to win us that series, but it was just our offense and, and lack thereof at times that kind of hurt us. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the biggest thing to me, kind of going into my last point before I let you go here, is when you get this close, or even if you win it, I think the biggest – there always is like a wall that you have to kind of go towards and decide if you want to pass it or stay there. And it's it's the inner debate of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But also, if I stay complacent, I may not go anywhere. And so I think that you guys and, and Brad Stevens have found basically kind of the perfect balance with it in the sense that none of your core is gone. And you've added a piece in Malcolm Brogdon that I think is going to very well complement this team. And, you know, I, I think Neesmith could be a good player, but I think it's going to be good for him to be in the situation in Indiana now to be able to get a lot of reps without having to have the stress of being on a high-quality winning team. But so, but in trading him and the other guys, I mean, you essentially traded – it was a five-for-one, but it was five who weren't really rotation players in the playoffs for a guy that's going to be a huge contributing piece to this team going, going forward. Right. And also picking up off the buyout market and free agency, Danilo Gallinari. And, you know, there's, al there's always going to be the – Oh, he's old. He can't move anymore. There's nothing wrong with having a veteran smart player that can space the floor for just an extra death piece, whether he is, whether he is playing or whether it's just an insurance type thing. And so to me, I think those two alone while maintaining everything else has given you guys, in my opinion, an A plus off season. You know, what can you speak for those two pieces being added and how special this could make for a year two of the EMA era, just with this group as a whole? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, EMA is always going to be defensive-minded and adding, you know, Malcolm Brockton, who's, you know, arguably a really good defender in his own right. Um, but, you know, like I talked about before, just the, the amount of pressure, physical, you know, all those things, mental stress that a playoff series has on you. You know, I think just adding smart players um, and, you know, Gallinari and, and uh, Malcolm, I mean, those guys are high-level elite players when it comes to IQ, being able to make open shots, being able to make the right play. I think it's going to take a lot of pressure off of the Jays, you know, and Mark is going to be even easier to get into the paint, do what he does, and be able to kick out to even more options. Um, I think it's just going to help. And the thing I've learned about Brad is that, you know, he's always going to have a good pulse on what the group needs. Um, and that's something that I'm trying to pick his brain about even as we speak. You know, how can I be more – um, like-minded with him in terms of being able to use my coaching, um, you know, background to this front office and GM thing now. Yeah. Um, and sorry, just question that came to mind was, you know, you guys ended up drafting uh, J.D. Davison out of Alabama and you guys just finished summer league. He, he had a great summer league. You know, is, is there some excitement within the organization about what maybe he could bring to the table, whether it's Spurs this year or in the long term? Absolutely. You know, the one thing I take from being around J.D. Um, in summer league is that, you know, he's a quiet guy, likes to have fun. Teammates love being around him, um, but he's got a really good feel for the game, you know. Um, for a rookie to come in and, and make plays in the pick and roll like he did, 
Um, you don't really see that often, you know, so he's got a good feel for the game, doesn't force the issue too much, um, and he's explosive. You know, he can get out in the open court Very. Um, with, a, with a ton of speed and, and make the right play while going 100 miles per hour. I think that's something rare, but it's, I'm glad to see that he showed that to everyone else um, in the league um, over summer league. Yeah. Um, you know, Jarrell, thank you so much for coming on, man. I'm glad we were able to finally get it worked out. I know that there's a special season incoming for you guys. Um, you know, year two of EMA, the group that the group that was dominating last year is all coming back to run it back. Looks like everybody's going to be healthy to start it out. Got even better, in my opinion. And there's going to be that eagerness coming off of, of making it to the finals, but just not getting there and winning it. So I'm excited for you guys, man. So, uh, but like I said, just really appreciate you coming on, man. Had a great time. Kyle, thanks for having me, man. Best of luck to you also. Yeah, thank you. But with that being said, this is the end of episode 20 of the Coast to Coast podcast. We'll be back to you guys next week. Artlist.io.